Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. We made it to episode 14. Pretty awesome, huh? Before I jump in, though, let's talk about coaching groups. I'm going to be launching some parenting coaching groups soon. They'll be aimed at parents affected by ADHD. If you have ADHD and your kid has ADHD, I want to help. So that's coming. Please stay tuned. If it's something you would be interested in, please send me an email at brendan at adhdessentials.com. B-R-E-N-D-A-N at A-D-H-D-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-L-S dot com. Today, we're talking to Danielle Stasa, a middle school English teacher and former co-worker of mine who has flipped her classroom. What that means is she's created instructional videos for her students to watch at home, and then they apply those lessons in the classroom with her. That's when they do the work. They're not doing homework. They're watching videos. And the work side of it, the application of those videos, happens in the class with her, where she can better support them and better monitor their progress. In today's episode, we discuss flipping classrooms, unsurprisingly. Also, the benefit of focusing on the process and how success in writing has led to success in reading for Danielle's students. Oh, and I finally described the wall of awful. All right, let's get rolling. I guess just broadly speaking, how does ADHD affect your classroom? There's probably as many answers to that question as there are children, both with ADHD and without ADHD, because it's the dynamic that affects the classroom as opposed to the diagnosis. And there's a wide spectrum of it. So, you know, you see problems with impulse control, uh, especially in the middle school. You see, anyway, a vast difference in maturity levels um, and introspection. And so you add in any type of complicating factor uh, of which ADHD can be one. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. And it just multiplies the number of ways that students interact, um, both positively and negatively. So I would say preparedness and impulse control in broad categories are probably the two ways we see it the most that the students feel in the classroom. I want to pick out some of that. I want to sort of tease some of that out a little bit. Sure. One of the things you mentioned was that we see a broad spectrum of maturity levels. Yes. My folks who are listening that know ADHD are thinking, oh, yeah, because ADHD is a developmental disorder, so kids with ADHD are going to be less mature than their peers. But we're also talking about middle school, and middle school maturity levels are just all over the place anyway. That's exactly what I meant, Brendan. I I don't see any link specifically between students who have ADHD and being more or less mature than their classmates. 
um, they also fall in the exact same spectrum. Um, and so it's just the fact that you're adding in maybe personal difficulties a student that does have ADHD has on top of everything else that they're already going through in middle school. Mm -hmm. What the students feel most is the effect on being prepared for class, being able to do group work effectively, engage in conversation. How does that preparedness play out? And just feel free to pick a, a given area, homework, group work, whatever makes sense. Okay, so I'm gonna back up a little bit. Yeah. Um, because since you and I last worked together, um, after attending the Learning in the Brain Conference, I flipped my classroom. So what does that mean? Okay, so a flipped classroom model means that I take almost all direct instruction uh, in terms of lecture. They still get direct instruction, but it's much more individually based. Mm -hmm. um, and so the general lecture gets done in video format and part of their homework might be to do the lecture and complete a small assignment, depending on if it's a writing lecture or a grammar lecture, and then come into class the next day where we use it. Um, in terms of the literature, they do reading and multiple choice or true false comprehension type questions. And then when we come to class, we do all the higher level uh, analysis, evaluation, identifying character motivation, um, writing about the story. We do all of those things in class. All writing now is done in class in school with me. They do no writing at home. They're getting a lot of support in the creating side and yes. the consuming side of, of school. The consuming side is being done at home. Yes. Which is a great model. It is. And specifically, I think overall, it's been very positive for all the students. It's been particularly positive for students who might have ADHD or any type of executive functioning issues in that there's very little paperwork that goes home with them. Mm -hmm. They have access to all the audio for all the reading, which helps many. It doesn't help all. And I kind of do want to get to that with you a little bit in terms of what I see, how ADHD impacts reading comprehension. Mm -hmm. Since I flipped my classroom, I, I have a very different understanding of how ADHD is affecting students in my classroom. Okay. So yeah, um, feel free. Yeah. Okay. Pick my brain, I feel like I mean, we're that's... like going off on all these tangents and it's so interconnected, but at the same time, it's the same types of skill sets that all students are learning mm -hmm. to think that students with ADHD are impaired in some way or unable to do the things that students without it can do. They absolutely can. Um, it just takes, I think, more awareness of the concentration and focus piece with them, which is what I see across the board in my classroom as an English teacher. So when they're reading, are they really reading? You can t clearly see in their homework scores and in what they're able to put together in the classroom work and contribute to a group and in their writing when they have to write about what they read the night before. Um, you can clearly see the students who are struggling to put any kind of real focus into the reading piece of it. Some of that is focus. Mm -hmm. Some of that is comprehension. The trick with looking at everything through a lens of focus, and, and that's, I mean, the name ADHD, right? Attention deficit. Right. Immediately, we're thinking it's an attention issue. It's horribly named. The name is wrong. 
it's it's a it's a deficit of the executive functions of the brain and some of that is focus but it's a lot more than that well when i say focus or attention i don't mean that they're i what i guess what i mean is that when they read something they're not really putting it into their short-term memory to transfer it to their long-term memory right so they're reading the words but they're not really absorbing the content yes because adhd kids have working memory challenges yes you absolutely see that with the homework comprehension and again i don't want to pigeonhole them all into that category because that isn't true for all of them there some of its interests but some of it is also at a younger age did they learn skills to help them with these challenges right so i do see a difference ability to answer questions about what they've read from students who were on an iep and maybe got some uh, direct instruction on various strategies or help in terms of learning to read and actually absorb the material versus students who might not be on an IEP, might be on a 504 or nothing, maybe a DCAP. So you're saying that you're seeing a difference in skill level between kids who have an IEP, kids who have a 504, and kids who have neither an IEP nor a 504, maybe a DCAP, which is a district accommodation plan. A very broad overview general, but yes, I would say if you were to do a scattergram or you were to do like the median or mean average, students who have been on an IEP would be higher in their ability to read and comprehend and remember what they've read than students who are not at an earlier age. Where do kids on a 504 land? Not much better than kids who are on a DCAP or nothing. Really? Okay. Really? I mean, it depends a lot. We just threw all of my listeners into a panic or not all of them, but some of them because I'm sorry, (laughs) but that is what I'm seeing in reading. Now, you know, I have a discrete content area that I'm looking at and we're talking about um, English, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I absolutely see a difference and it isn't absolute. There's certainly students who, you know, are uh, uh, nothing at all and they're doing fine. Right. Um, but somewhere along the way, they learn the skills they needed to learn, mm-hmm. right? Either through parents or through private tutoring or through something else. It doesn't have to be an IEP where these kids learn these skills. Early intervention is really key. If they haven't had early intervention by the time they get to middle school, they can read. And if they put the effort in, they can remember what they've read. The ability mm-hmm. is there. So they're not practicing it on a regular basis. Like any other skill, it takes practice for your brain to grow and absorb and, and develop all the connections it needs to do it efficiently and right. effectively. And they're not developing those at the same rate as other students are. Yeah, yeah. Because Kids with ADHD just don't pick up skills in the same way that kids who are neurotypical do, right? And it's anything from, you know, your neurotypical kid sees you do the laundry twice and now they know how to do the laundry and your ADHD kid can watch you do the laundry all day for a year and they're still not going to know how to do the laundry. Right. You have to say to them, you put the colors in here and you leave the whites out and then you turn it on a cold and you put the soap in. They just need you to walk them through the steps. Often only once you walk them through the steps once and they're good. Right. And they need to do it. They can't just watch it and pick it up. And I'm not an elementary school teacher. So, you know, there's lots of reading programs out there and this isn't to in any way. And in fact, I would say that our elementary school teachers and the special ed departments in general probably are doing maybe a better job than people realize when you compare the results by the time they get to middle school, what those kids can do versus students who weren't on 
IEPs. I guess that's kind of my point, right? Like mm-hmm. they have to learn the strategies and practice the strategies. And from what I see, our special ed teachers are making sure that does happen. So, and again, it varies by the individual student, but um, you know, it's really profoundly interesting to me to see the difference in their reading comprehension from homework, right? Okay. It's just like the students who are on IP just know how to attack that and do that and put yep. that brain effort into it. Whereas the students who are not on IHP and have perhaps attention deficit, they don't know how to do that. And they're just skimming through the homework and not, not absorbing the content. So here's a strategy I used when I taught and I use it with the kids that I tutor. And it's one that you know, I'm sure, but it's a good one specifically for kids with ADHD. <laughs> Give them an index card have them use that index card as a bookmark at all times. Uh-huh. And when they read, they just put the bookmark down below whatever line they're reading on the book. Right. And then you just slide it down to the next line, slide it down to the next line, slide it down. Yeah. They're not going to do it all the time in school because there's like the stigma stuff that happens, especially in middle school where you don't want to look different, but they might use it every now and then, but at home they should be using it. Right. And what's that, what that's doing is slowing them down because half the time kids with ADHD are not absorbing what they read because they're trying to read the whole page in a second. Right. They're skipping over stuff and thinking they can read faster than they can and those kinds of things. And this makes them more mindful of what they're reading. It makes them tune in a little bit better. Yeah, the, the you have to have buy-in from the students. And they, if the student has been unsuccessful for long enough... Yep. They just stop trying to be successful. And I don't yeah. mean that that's, I don't mean that negatively on the student. It makes me very sad to see it. And I'm constantly trying to um, change that mindset. But it is very difficult for, for a student who has not been successful year after year after year to believe that they can do better. I agree. And that's, that's the shame component of ADHD. That's my number one uh, mission as, as in what I do. It's my number one mission as an ADHD person. Um, And I have a model for it that I call the wall of awful (laughs) that I've actually mentioned on this podcast and never explained. Um, (laughs) So maybe I'll do that now. Yeah. I've never actually explained what it is Um, because it's on my website and stuff. People can figure it it is. Yes. But let's do it now. So the wall of awful is the emotional barrier that prevents us from initiating tasks and taking risks in an area that we have failed at repeatedly. And so every time we fail, we get a little failure brick in our wall. And along with the failure brick, we get a disappointment brick because we disappointed ourselves. And we also get a disappointment brick for anyone whose opinion matters around that task. So let's say it's a homework assignment disappointment brick for me, mom, dad, my teacher. When we disappoint someone, we assume they're going to reject us socially. Whether or not they do doesn't matter. It's how we think about it. So you also get a rejection brick for all of those people who you've disappointed, sometimes including yourself. Um, And that it gets big fast. And the next thing we know, we have guilt and we have shame and we have loneliness if we feel isolated as a result of our failures it becomes a really difficult thing to navigate because if you have ADHD, you're failing all the time. Even if we pick only homework, potentially that's four failures in one day 
because there's four classes that gave you homework. Then you have to navigate that wall in order to do the thing that is on the other side of that wall. That's where you have to learn strategies. But that metaphor makes it easier to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it impacts even their, they avoid schoolwork, right? They may not avoid school because they may be successful in other areas of school, but schoolwork, whether it's classwork or homework, there's a definite avoidance there if they believe that they're going to fail anyway. And that getting back, I guess, to your original question, how does it, how do I see it in the classroom? I mean, it definitely impacts their readiness to engage in group work in an English class. You know, we do anytime we're doing literature, it's there's some group element going to happen because I believe pretty strongly that you can't really understand literature without discussing it. Right. In general, middle school students much prefer to talk to each other than they do to me. So we do a lot of, a lot of group work. And it's interesting to me to see students who, you know, I know didn't do well in the homework, kind of fake their way through the group work. There becomes a point where some are better at it than others. Other students are better at picking up on it. You Mm -hmm. know, like there's that range again of maturity level that's going on. And so, you know, it definitely impacts that group dynamic because the students who are picking up on the fact that they really don't know what happened in last night's chapter tend to not want to take their opinion about something. And sometimes, even though they didn't know what happened, they might make a pretty awesome connection. So managing that dynamic is, is challenging in a classroom. I have very large classes this year. I have classes of 26 and 27 students. Wow. Yeah, I have 131 students this year. Holy cow. So it makes it very difficult to um, always be on top of it. You know, you're always coming out feeling like I could have done better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, ima- I would imagine. Wow, that's a lot of kids. In that group work, do you ever just, and I don't mean this individually, but at, to the class, do you ever call out the fact that, you know, sometimes we're doing group work and sometimes one of the kids in your group just hasn't done the reading. And sometimes you can tell and sometimes you can't, but that doesn't mean they're not going to be able to contribute something because they might be listening to what you're saying and figuring out the chapter as you talk about it and then be able to make a a really important connection that you still need to hear, even though they didn't actually read that section. I do, not exactly in those words, but yes, right now I'm developing a participation rubric based on the Massachusetts frameworks. Mm -hmm. So that they, the idea being that they will um, kind of assess how they're doing and meeting the standards. One of the things of course is coming prepared um, being able to ask questions beyond yes or no questions, um, you know, going right down kind of through the frameworks and using that as my model for my rubric. And the reason I'm doing that is because I like what the way Massachusetts frameworks present the dynamic of a group discussion because it's very, um, it's not knowledge or content based. It's, you know, how are you approaching a group discussion? You know, how do you actually contribute to it? It's not just because you know some finite piece of information, but because you can ask the right questions and respond to the right questions and have an open mind. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to encourage that in all of our group work, which kind of gets at what you were saying. The other piece is because I run a flipped classroom, I know before the students come in who did their homework, quote unquote, and who didn't, at least who completed the questions. Is that because you're getting feedback? It's online feedback, yeah. 
and I know which questions uh, it gives me all it tells me when they logged in when they didn't log in I actually know for every single individual student every single mouse click they make when they go into the platform and do their work so if there's ever any questions from parents about what they're doing or how long they're taking I have all of that data on every student every time I log in wow so yeah it's been very positive and beneficial I think that in, it has definitely promoted a more uh, collaborative relationship with parents. Does it increase accountability among your students? It does. I still get the students who try and argue that they did something that they didn't do. <laughs> Although I went there, I did this, I did that, and we'll look through their mouse clicks. But yeah, it has cut down. I have less than a handful now of students who still try and say they did something or didn't do something because by this time of the school year they know that I, I know so and I know when they did it and how long they took to do it and everything and I'll show them I pull it up and show them it's not you know like secret or anything because they know that if a student didn't do their homework the first thing they have to do is do their homework they don't participate in the group discussion if they didn't do their homework okay. now the students don't know if they got a passing grade on that homework I know if they got a passing grade on that homework <laughs> but that does help that dynamic of they don't necessarily know immediately if any student in the group really understood the reading, like how well they did. And right. it's interesting to see how that comes out over the course of a novel, right? Like they, they're working together and they start to kind of figure out, you know, who kind of really knows and who doesn't really know and how they deal with that. Um, I think this I think the students who are struggling with homework it's not because they didn't do the reading because that group dynamic is happening they know they're going to come in they know they're going to work in their group and I can hear them in their conversations use character names and talk about what happened and yet they got the homework questions wrong okay so that's where that attention that we're being and getting the content that's where that's affecting them and and it's profoundly enlightening to me as a teacher to see which students are really struggling with that piece of it. And it isn't necessarily the students who have diagnosed ADHD. The flipped classroom is really helping you pinpoint which kids are struggling with comprehending the at-home reading. Yes. And I run into parents all the time who have no idea how to help them. And to be honest with you, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's very hard at 12, 13 years of age to help them if they don't want the help if they haven't been getting if they haven't been getting the strategies up to this point they yeah. have to want to try some things and want to do better and i don't always see it in Let my class back. sometimes i see back. that in eight it, as they go up you know like the next year into high school it does come that because i try very hard to make sure that they know that that homework grade doesn't affect what I think they know or right. how smart they are. Let me push back. Let me push back. Um, they want the help. They do. I, Here's what they don't want. No, yeah. there is something in there. What they don't want is the shame. And, okay. and they can't get to the help without first going through the shame. And that's the challenge. I that's guess what's hard. I would, I so, would qualify that as saying perceived change, shame. Yes, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because from their perspective, absolutely. Right. Yeah, from their yeah. perspective, it doesn't matter if it's perceived or real because they're they're still experiencing it. What that boils down to is, and I don't necessarily, I don't know your kids. This is completely a one an individual kid to individual kid thing, but what that boils down to is 
figuring out how to communicate with that kid and give them the help they need in a way that at minimum doesn't increase the shame and at best helps you dodge around it and avoid it. I think a complicating factor to that is they don't believe they can do better. Right. right. right? So, you know, getting and past let me let me that jump in sometimes that. takes a whole year for me yeah. to, to get them past the idea that they can't do better. And oddly enough, it often starts with their writing. Because I have more control over their writing. Yeah. So I have more ability to point out the short term successes to them Mm -hmm. and build on those than I do with reading. Because unfortunately, the reality of the situation is you have to read a chapter a night or you have to read two chapters tonight. Like we have a timeline, right? We have a school year, we have vacations, we have snow days, we have certain things that happen. And so the pace when you're reading literature, I don't have a lot of control over that. But in the writing, I do have, because all of the writing now happens in school. I do have more control over pointing out, number one, how to use the resources. So I do the writing, the direct instruction and writing, examples, example introductions, example confusions, color code the different parts of things. You know, I do all of that in video now. And Mm -hmm. so when they're struggling in class, we can pull it up and we can talk about on a one-on-one basis what the students need it and target more where they're struggling, certain mm-hmm. things. And then, yes, that's right. You did that correctly this time, right? Because yeah. we end up doing a lot of writing in my class. And okay. so, you know, we're constantly, every couple of weeks, at least we're writing our typed paragraph in the library on the computers. And yep. it does a couple of things. Number one, they start to feel better that they really do know what they've read, mm-hmm. even though they didn't necessarily do well on the multiple choice homework questions. And number two, it builds their concentration and focus. So a big part of MCAS being online now is, you know, they sit down, they read, they answer multiple choice questions, and now you have to write an essay. And now you're going to do another reading and answer questions, and now you're going to write a narrative. You're going to continue the story. And they do all that in one sitting. So they are literally typing, writing for almost three hours, two days in a row. Holy cow. Um, so, so there's a lot in there. Hold on. Let me, let me, <laughs> okay, let me yeah. look around a little bit. Kids not feeling like they can do it. Right. Here's a component of that. And I'm not, I'm in no way saying you do this, but they have lots of teachers and they have parents. And this is a thing that adults do to kids, especially kids with ADHD. Mm-hmm. So you're not, you're not just navigating what you've done. You're also navigating what other people have done. And so communication becomes important here. Mm-hmm. Often kids with ADHD get punished by A's. And what I mean by that is a kid with ADHD who can knock out a a C plus B minus pretty easily. And that's comfortable for them. It's a little bit of a stretch, but it's not the end of the world. When they get an A, people are like, yeah, you got an A, good job. And then on the next assignment, they get a C. And it becomes, well, how come you got a C on this one if you got an A the last time? The expectation being that you're going to, now that you got an A for the rest of your life, you're going to get an A. And ADHD is nothing if not inconsistent. You're not going to keep that A. And the message that kids learn eventually is, I'm just not going to get an A because every time I get an A, it doesn't feel good. I get beat up on it. So they stop trying to get the A. And the message that they need to hear is, I don't want you to get an A all the time. I want you to get an A this time. And next time we'll see what happens. Or I don't want you to get a B all the time. I want you to get a B this time. Like, let's try. It's only about right now. It's not about the rest of your life. 
So I guess my response to you is here's the interesting thing about writing in class. The feedback, number one, I have 131 students. That grade piece of the feedback doesn't actually come very quickly right? in all reality. So the immediate feedback they're getting is, yes, you cited that quote correctly. Mm -hmm. Look, now that looks right on your paper the way you put your quotation marks because I showed them how to fix the quotation marks going the wrong direction. So you're talking about the process. Right. We compare what they're doing with the example. Again, it's about teaching them resources, teaching them mm -hmm. focus, right? Like they're from the beginning of the year to now, their ability to sit down every student. I don't care if they have ADHD or don't have ADHD. Their ability to sit down and type has improved 80% in my classroom, <laughs> okay. just from the practice of doing it over and over again, having a deadline, everyone meets that deadline. It doesn't matter if you're done or you think you're done, you're done. This was your time limit and we're go you're going to get feedback on what you've produced for me. And you've mentioned that the area where kids feeling like they can't do it is least is in writing. And it's because of all those things. It's because of your, you're looking at the process piece by piece as they go. It's because it's got sort of forced time where you're doing deep work where, and you're there to support them. And the question becomes, and I don't know the answer to this, but the question becomes, how do you take the things that are making writing work and put some of that into reading comprehension into a test that they take on grammar and those kinds of things. Right. So I've come to the conclusion that there's no easy short-term fix for any of this. Nope. <laughs> what I have seen and what I take hope in and faith in that when they start to have success in their writing, I see in the second half of the year, them more willing to attack the reading. Awesome. So Whereas in the first half of the year, even though maybe what we're reading is more high interest to the majority of students, by the second half of the year, they're actually doing better on their reading homework mm -hmm. because they're more willing to actually truly own the comprehension piece of it and mm -hmm. make that added step in, how do I do this better? How do I not just skim through it because I'm afraid of failing, but actually make an effort and maybe I get 50% of them right as opposed to 5% of them right, right or 10% of them right, right? And that's, that's all adds to that feeling that, yeah, I can do it. It's, we emphasize, emphasize over and over all year that learning is a process, right? Like yep. it's not an end result. That's awesome. It's a process that you go through. I have my grading structures since are pretty evenly weighted in my classroom. So even if they're struggling in one area, other areas will pick them up. So it's incredibly difficult to actually fail my class um, and even get below a C in my class. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I have a handful. So the vast majority of students are getting C's or better as their grade. You see a change in attitude with that, that they're not borderline failing the whole year. Not that there aren't times when some of them are, but you know they can pull themselves out of it and get that C, um, which makes them happy, makes their parents happy. It adds to that feeling that they can be successful because they can. It sounds like the C's become, because generally speaking, kids are getting a C, when they start to drop below that, because the C is now attainable, it's a motivator to push a little bit harder and get away from the D or the F because they know a C can happen. That's awesome. And we can be really strategic about it too. They don't have to like make up everything or do some big project about what we need to do to get them up to that C grade. 
and it is attainable, they can do it. So yeah, I, th I think all of those things over the course of a year, you know, and this isn't to knock any teachers, but for some of these students, this is a first time where they feel like they do have some control over their results. Mm -hmm. um, and that makes a big difference going into the next year and then next year after that. So it kind of builds on itself. I want to pull a few highlights out of this conversation that are useful for the listeners because most sure. of my listeners are parents and they're going, this is school. I mean, <laughs> that's nice. My kid goes to school. But um, here are the things you're doing that are helping your students with ADHD meet with success. Um, and really, your, any of your struggling students are going to benefit from this. And the ones who aren't struggling too. All of your yeah, kids. I think they all do. Yeah. yeah. But especially the ADHD kids because that's what we're looking at. One, you're really digging into the process rather than looking at the objective. So yes, you have an objective, but, and this is in writing especially, but you're really looking into how are we going through the steps that are going to get us to the process? That matters. That's enormous. That's anything from a writing an essay to cleaning your room. Also, you're taking a really long view, right? From the jump, you're talking about by the end of the year. So you're not looking at it just in terms of September or just in terms of the first quarter. You're looking at growth from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Yes. And for parents, that's raising a healthy, well-adjusted 26-year-old, right? It's not even about seventh grade or eighth grade. It's about the end game of having an adult that is doing okay. And if they're struggling in middle school, it's okay. We'll get them through middle school. They'll figure it out. We'll help them. We'll give them the skills they need. You're recognizing the importance of, of developing skills and growing those skills. That's awesome. You're taking risks and trying new things. You flipped your classroom. Yeah. That's a, that had to be a big risk when you did that. And it was a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. What was that like? Uh, I did it in the middle of my biggest, heaviest literature unit. Well, we read the Red Pyramid <laughs> in class. And so um, I did it in the middle of that. So that was pretty crazy. And I didn't really have a good platform at first when we first started. Didn't even really know what I needed. Um, but I was really motivated. You know, I'm very interested in how the brain works. And, and you know, you say I take a long-term goal, but that is learning. Yes, we have objectives, but you don't have to meet those objectives this week or this month or this year, you know, right. like this is a road that we're on. Tell the kids at the beginning of the year and we travel that road and everybody's gonna go at a different pace. And I try the best that I can to move everybody along, right? Mm -hmm. From the students who are, you know, three miles behind to the students who are five miles ahead, you know, and the flip classroom has definitely helped with that because it becomes, as I said, very individually paced uh, classroom, especially on the grammar and the writing end of things where students can try out things as they become ready for them. Um, and I can constantly be pointing out on a very individual basis and helping them fix their individual work. It's not the same for everybody, right? So they can all kind of move at their own pace. And what I didn't expect and what I have seen over the last five years is how much the writing piece impacts the reading piece of it. You would think it's the other way around, mm -hmm. but they're, confidence in that they can sit down and write for half an hour in my class and come up with at least one or two pieces of evidence from whatever it is we've read or take on the role of a character and summarize what happened as a different character in the story you know those things that they their confidence that they can do that and i say confidence not meaning that they all get A's. it's not about that it's about that they can hit individual benchmarks 
that they weren't doing at the beginning of the year that makes them feel confident. And that piece affects their belief in their ability to read. Yeah. And that, that's another thing you're doing is you're, you're using data to provide feedback and you're providing that feedback. It sounds like on a fairly regular basis, it's not, at, at least weekly, you must be giving kids feedback about where they were before and where they are now. Yeah, we do. Um, I try and write at least once every couple of weeks. Sometimes we're writing a lot, you know, like we did a narrative and then I did a joint essay with the social studies teacher. So sometimes we're writing a lot. And so they're getting it daily. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty much everybody, you know, get something from me because we're in there for 40 minutes. And so, you know, all of a sudden having 26 or 27 students, I can still get around to everybody and give them feedback because they're literally writing the whole time. I don't have to do any instruction. The instruction was all done in video. And if they don't remember, they pull up the video and we help them, you know, we help them pull it up. We help while a flipped classroom is great for a student who has attention issues. The videos can also become they start, they, they start to fast forward and reverse and they use their mouses and they just go back and forth. You're laughing because you know exactly what I mean. They're going back and forth in the videos and they're not really using them the way they're intended to be using. But the nice thing is because they have such a long extended period of them writing, I can pretty much interrupt that behavior, get them refocused on what they're supposed to be doing, you know, and you can see where they feel more confident or less confident in what they're supposed to be writing about. So we deal with that piece of it as well. I, there's a subtext here, sort of. It's like an assumption that I think we. I just want to point out. It sounds like every kid in your classroom has a tablet or an iPad or something that they're working on. Is that? I usually book computer lab space. Okay. Okay. So we have multiple computer labs for the middle school. We have a few for the high school. If the high schools aren't using them, we can use them. Um, it's not typically a problem to get lab time. When we do our joint essay, they're writing in English and in social studies on the same day. So they're getting that even extended period of time of writing and feedback from multiple teachers on what they're doing. It's hugely beneficial to MCAS. Yeah, the fact that they have to, sometimes it's back-to-back classes and sometimes it's not, it doesn't really matter. The fact that they have to work on the same piece of writing, the same essay in multiple class periods during the day is much more, it simulates much more what they're gonna experience when they get to MCAS. I'm a firm believer that you can't perform well if you're not familiar with the environment in which you're performing. I agree. So we try and simulate as much as possible what they're expected to do, because to be quite honest, it's a lot for a kid to have to sit down and do what they have to do at MCAS, you know, and it's certainly not the be all end all. But again, when you get into that piece of being confident and feeling good about yourself, right, I want them to try. I Mm -hmm. I want them to sit down and try and do their best and know that that's all we ask, and that's great. What is bothersome to me as a teacher is when I see students who give up and don't try. Like, I don't want any of my students to ever give up. Yeah. And MCAS is the Massachusetts state standardized test for education, just because I, I literally have people in South Africa listening to this. So, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. It's um, our state testing. <laughs> yeah. I, I should point that out. Uh, when it comes to sort of these standardized tests like MCAS, how are your ADHD kids navigating that? Do they get overwhelmed? Do they, do they not care? How, are they just fine and it's not a big deal? What is that? I have to say, because of the amount of writing that we do in a computer lab during the course of the year, which is exactly what they do when they face MCAS, I really don't see any of our students getting overwhelmed with it. Any of them, you know, when I talk to the special ed teacher and the students heard being tested in small group, pullout group, 
it's the same thing. They know what to do when they sit down and they get the reading, when they get the multiple choice questions, there's some drag and drop and sequencing things they have to do and sorting things that they have to do as questions now, and then essays and narratives. And they know what to do. And you know, there's still obviously a waltz from that, but we really don't see the kids not trying at all. I mean, they are willing to sit down and give it their best try, you know? And that's, like I said, that's all I ask because it's not overwhelming or intimidating for them because we've done it so much. I have another flipped classroom question. Okay. What does the flipped classroom look like on the flip side, like at home? Is it how, what, how long do the lessons take to go through? What's the tech level of the house that is required? And what do you do when the house doesn't have internet or they don't have a computer because there's, there's poverty involved or they usually have in it the internet, but yesterday it was down, I guess. <laughs> like maybe okay. it's true, maybe it's so not. <laughs> So it was a learning experience and how to best make it all work. Okay, so at the beginning of the year, on the first day of school, they get all of their notes for the entire year. It's wow. color-coded by section. It's all the written notes that go with all the lectures. Wow. So they keep that all year long. So they have written copies of everything that I go over in a, a lecture, video lecture. In terms of what it looks like at home and how long the lessons are, um, I try to keep the videos, definitely the writing videos can be the longest because usually I take them through, you know, what would be in an induction, what would be in a body paragraph, those would be separate lessons, but you know, it's still, by the time you do five minutes of what goes into it and the different parts of something, and then you give them some examples, it can creep up on nine minutes. I never go over 10 minutes on a, on a video lesson ever. Awesome. Um, my grammar lessons tend to be five minutes or less, and then for the writing lessons, I've gone to, I've tried various things. What I've done now is I do multiple choice questions based on what I said in the video, what was in their notes, like what is your comprehension level for this. Mm -hmm. um, for the grammar lessons, they have to usually write me a sentence and identify something in their own writing. And then the reading pieces read, and then you go online and you answer. Now, for most of my students, for the reading questions, um, and actually for all of it, for all the lessons, they're timed. And that may not seem like a good idea, but the research has shown that you need to read before you answer the questions. Right. The students learning to read for answers as their first read through something, don't remember it. You have to just read through something and then read it again for the answers. And then probably a third time when they make them go back and do it in class for group work. Right. So they're getting like three times. Um, and so I time the multiple choice questions so that they have to read first and then go in to answer the questions. Okay. So there's still plenty of time for them to do it. I rarely run into students who didn't have enough time to answer them. I usually have about double the time it takes. But knowing that the time starts, they don't have time to read and answer the questions. They read first, and that's made a big difference as well. And timing it also enforces that time limit. One of the challenges that families affected by ADHD have is the teacher sends home an assignment that he thinks is going to take 15 minutes, and it takes the kid 45 minutes to do it. And some of that is the kid was spacing out. Some of that is the kid's just struggling and doesn't know what's going on. The fact that your lessons are timed means, no, it, it takes 15 minutes. That's what it takes. Yes, I have, especially now that writing's all done at school, I, I literally don't get 
the complaints that the homework's taking too long from, from anybody. Mm -hmm. um, and if I do, then we can go in and look at all the data and how long they're really taking to do it. The reading assignments um, are based on the audio book. So, you know, I send it home with a maximum try and send it home, depending on the school day and fire drills and different things. But I try to send it home with a maximum of 15 minutes of audiobook time, figuring that, you know, if they're using the audiobook, then they spent 15 minutes reading, they spend five to 10 minutes doing the questions, then that's a 20 to 25 minute homework. And right. that's about what it takes the kids. The kids who don't use the audiobook are usually reading it in less time. The kids with the audiobooks, do you find a difference in comprehension? if a kid is reading the book versus if they're listening to the audio? So I think it depends on the student and what issues they have with reading. I like to encourage it because I think it helps with pronunciation of names and different things, but it's really up to the student. I know that for some students, they read faster than the audio. So, you know, then, then read it and they get the characters in their head and they don't want to hear the audio. When we read the Red Pyramid, it's such a huge book. We usually start it in class almost every day. So we're starting the chapter in class. I play the audio in class with them. And it's up to them if they finish with the audio or they want to read it on their own when they get home. Does it help? I think if a student's difficulty is truly decoding, mm -hmm. then yes, it definitely helps. I think it can help any student. Like I said, with like Greek myths, pronunciation of names and things like that, right? I think it right. can help any student. Does it help with attention? That really varies. I ask the students this question all the time. I ask them. I think it depends on the student. And that's, that's for the student to determine whether they think it helps them or not. I mean, we can look at data and differences in homework, but I haven't noticed a correlation. The biggest correlation is just whether or not the student feels that they can do better. So much of it is emotion. I must say this every other podcast at least, but I'm always saying emotions beat academics every time. It really does. It's just the nature of the beast. You got to have the emotions squared away. Which I guess is why I take the long-term view. <laughs> <laughs> so just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essential about ADHD in your classroom or just in what you've observed in the, your years of teaching? It's really important for students to feel comfortable when they are working, whether that's in group work or individually or at home. And so physically comfortable when they're working. That means I have students who literally stand up my almost my entire class and they're doing their grammar worksheets and standing, they're doing classroom discussions standing. And as long as they're not impacting other students, I have no problem with that. The fidget devices and things, to be honest with you, a simple pen is the best fidget device in the world. Let's them doodle, let's them, you know, do whatever they need to do to stay focused. And sometimes I see them doing it in classwork where they're standing up and they're all discussing something and they're involved. And I still see all these little, they're playing with their hair, they're doing different things that, you know, that they're doing to help them think. Letting them do that is really important. Confidence is really important. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection.
10% better is all you need.